Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is a slightly unwell Liam. Slightly unwell indeed, mate, yeah, but uh, you know, trying to sort of keep my spirits up, keep pumped up. Did you have a splendiferous Jubilee weekend? Uh, it was all right. I went, all right. To a, uh, I went to a street party in the rain. You know? Nice. So that's, that's sort of Jubilee to me, that says everything about Britain, is a... Bunch of people sitting around eating soggy hot dogs and burgers on plastic furniture in the middle of the street. Indeed. And trying to enjoy themselves about it. Which in most <laughs> of the places is called poverty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> in the UK, we call it a celebration. It's national pride, mate. Yeah. yeah. In- institutional <laughs> reverence. Fuck off. <laughs> I also managed to make it to Edinburgh for a bit as well, which is, uh, yeah, they have the right attitude towards royalism, I think. But. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I was just thinking to myself, this street party must not have been occurring in Scotland then. No, although I'm sure there has <laughs> been. I mean, there, there is, a, 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 as I understand it, there is a substantial number of monarchists in Scotland. I, I get up to Edinburgh a lot. I've never met one. I've never I know met quite one. a few Scottish people. I've never fucking. I've met. never met one either. No, no, but they, they do exist. Apparently, yes. Some people are fond of the Queen. A rare breeze. We really should have done this intro for the premium, actually, because in the uh, in the premium this week, I'm going to be doing a. Uh, uh, going over, I suppose, of The Crown, which I've been re-watching as it's pertinent and because it's a very, very good show. Well, just like copy and paste the audio and see how much of a lazy piss take our audience think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I haven't, you know, in the 200 odd episodes we've done so far, I've never yet copy pasted the audio. <laughs> There's always a first, isn't there? there you know, there is, uh, sub, there is a some bar of integrity yeah. that we have, just some. But yes, please forgive Liam this week. He's not very well, but he's coming regardless, and he's he's judged himself up. I'm trying to be full of it. I'm I'm just basically I've got, I've got the ump, and I'm basically hoping that, that will just like be a substitute for being full of beans as possible. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, you know, use your anger because I've got a few things to roar about. So hopefully, you know, I won't just be a, a useless pile of shit sitting over here. Remember, Emperor Palpatine, man, let it flow through you. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Good. Yes, good. <laughs> anyway, yes, let's do a bit of news before we get started. Uh, oh, I, I love this. I think this is amazing. This is an article from the AV Club. Um, the AV Club, I think, in recent years has gone a little bit downhill, but every now and then they still swing for the fences just with this title alone. Alan Cummings Chimp, former co-star, found alive after owner faked its death. What? <laughs> Uh, yeah, in in lighter news, Alan Cummings, Alan Cummings, chimp as co-star. in like Boris, yes, from Goldeneye, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what was it, the Night Stalker or whatever, or the I can't remember what his X Men character was called, the Bamp. Yeah, I know, I know, he was in Eyes Wide Shut and all. Right? Yeah, yeah, good actor. Um, yeah, yeah. He's... Starting the film with the chimp. Chimp was thought dead. Now it's still alive. That's the end of that article. No, I shall read for you here. <laughs> Today, in stories that just get more depressing, the more you learn about them, so don't say we didn't warn you news. Tonka, a performing chimp that's appeared in a number of Hollywood productions, including the 1997 Alan Cumming comedy Buddy, has now been found after his owner allegedly made false reports of his death and subsequent cremation to throw authorities off their tracks. You may remember the saga of Tonka from a few weeks back when Cumming offered up a reward, matching one being offered by Peter, for information on the whereabouts of the chimp, who he apparently remembered fondly from the film. And if the appearance of the four-letter animal rights org in this story suggests the point where things might get weird, well, good instincts, my friend. (laughs) As it turns out, Tonka was not dead, as reported by Tonya Haddix, his owner, who apparently reported the chimpanzee's death in an effort to keep both Peter and the courts off her back re her ongoing ape ownership. Here's Rolling Stone describing his living arrangements over the last year, revealed when authorities raided Haddix's home and found that rumours of Tonka's chimp death had been greatly exaggerated. Tonka was secretly hidden away for the past year in Haddix's clever Missouri home, where he had a 60-inch television, an interactive iPad-like touch device, and had celebrated St. Patrick's Day amongst a few of Haddix's close friends. You know what they say, You've never really experienced St. Paddy's until you've done it with a tablet-equipped chimpanzee. It sounds to me like he's quite loved and well looked after. It does. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I would be like, quite like to be kept. Michael <laughs> Jackson had a chimp. He I mean, did, yeah. How, how much did Peter breathe down his neck about it? Wasn't it famously that Bubbles wasn't allowed to attend Michael Jackson's funeral because he was, uh, quote-unquote, too violent? <laughs> well, chimp, chimps do have a certain rep, but, I mean, unless some, you know, like uh, uh, other evidence comes to the forefront, it sounds like this one's owner actually uh, 
loves him and cares for him a great deal and wants him to be happy. So. Yeah, it seems like the owner has essentially tried to get ahead of criticism for keeping exotic animals and has said that they've died when in fact they're actually, as you said, being, uh, seems to be being kept quite 16-inch well. TV? Yeah. And he's been, you know, he's encouraged to join in on St. Paddy's Day festivities. Yeah. In his own little chill-out den. I mean, I don't have a 60-inch TV, man. That chimp is living better than me. Fucking hell. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's being mistreated. Yeah, but uh, anyway, well, I'm, I'm, uh, Alan Cumming has uh, not uh, not given any statement on this so far, despite his... I mean, there was a reward, I believe $20,000 that he put up for information on the whereabouts. I don't know if that's been claimed. But uh, yes, it turns out the chimp film star was indeed living like a chimp film star. He was the Jack Nicholson of the chimp world and uh, enjoyed some St. Paddy's Day drinks. Well, unless he, unless that chimpanzee, was it Tonka? Tonka, yeah. Unless somebody, like, demonstrates empirically that he is miserable in any way, shape, or form, I think they should just fucking leave him in her alone. Yeah, no, Personally, I'm, like, I'm with you with that. It sounds like I'm he's having you. a grand old time. Yeah. So, uh, My second article this week, this is from BBC News. Film fan watches 1,000 movies in coronavirus lockdown. A self-confessed movie fanatic... Fucking amateur. Sorry. <laughs> well, I was going to get on to that. <laughs> a self-confessed movie fanatic watched more than 1,000 films in a year after losing his job in the first COVID-19 lockdown. Phil Watts from Somerset crammed in 1,028 films after sometimes watching as many as seven in one day. The son of a former cinema projectionist, he described himself as a super geek when it came to cinema. His marathon year of films in- involved watching every James Bond, Star Trek, and Fast and Furious film. Mr. Watts, who is also known among his film-watching network as Not George Lucas, was working at a woodworking firm when he was furloughed in November 2020 and made redundant the following January. In the spring of 2021, having been working from home on other projects and having films on in the background, he realized he watched an awful lot. I have to keep notes or I forget what I've watched, he said. I was well into the three to four hundreds in March, and I thought that maybe I could do a thousand in a year. On 28th December 2021, Mr. Watts watched the 1,000th film, which was Gone with the Wind which he'd never seen before. There were some days when because of work or other reasons I didn't watch any, but on other days I could get through a few of the early Universal monster films as they're only about 70 minutes long. So on a good day I could watch about seven. Towards the end I was trying to fit lots of films in, but it became a bit laborious. But for me, watching films is a way to unwind. Uh, The article goes on and on and on as BBC News articles tend to do when they've got nothing else to write about. However, (laughs) what I do like is uh, his discussion about his wife. He said his wife was accepting of his movie marathon. She was happy in the garden while I was inside, usually with the curtains shut so I didn't get any glare or reflections. She would come in sometimes, open them up, and I would act like a vampire, pretending the sun burns. We have very different tastes in movies. We found a few that she would watch with me, but she was happy to leave me to it, he said. Mate, your wife hates you. (laughs) I can absolutely guarantee that she sat in the garden going, that miserable, unsociable freak. Yeah. Simmering, resenting you. She's like, oh, she, like you're not going to be. She's not going to be forgetting that in any time, any hurry, <laughs> is she? I mean, we often make jokes about the fact that we're unsociable bastards, and it's very much true. And I'm a big fan of binge watching, and I do a lot of that myself. But you have to make some effort, mate. Watching a thousand films in a year just to me sounds a little bit more like depression than anything else. Well, yes, you know and, I mean? go, and it, go, um, go outside occasionally. Just I mean, occasionally. Yeah, I mean, even even I do that. And if, I mean, it, were I living with a partner, I, I mean, what's the fucking point? What's you have the, to give them some of po- your time, What's man? the point <laughs> of being like in a domestic relationship with someone if you're going to be like, right, you fucking sit out there all day, you know, I'm just going to steam through this and just interrupt me as little as possible and that would be, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. I love binge watching stuff. I mean, a happy Saturday afternoon is me. With your missus. Sure. No, yeah, but you I know. mean, like, you know, I play a lot of video games as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. like a, a happy Saturday afternoon for me is sitting with my laptop playing like latest game or whatever. But I do, you know, if my missus says, you know, do you want to go out or let's go to the pub or let's go around to my dad's for roast dinner or something like that, you do have to say yes. You can't just sit with the curtain closed yeah. and be like, no, I'm happy. With-. And uh, sorry as well. Watch all of the Fast and Furious films. I mean, dude, out of a thousand films, so he, that, I, I would not put those on the list. I really so he, so he says he's watched a thousand films, mm-hmm. and he's watched uh, how many Fast and Furious films are there? Nine, I believe so. Yeah. So he's actually he's actually watched nine hundred ninety one films, <laughs> and you know, so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. yeah. What's your record? Do you reckon? Because I know occasionally you spend an entire day watching films. What's your record for films in a day? Do you think? Oh well. Um, 
Well, I, I know you've done 24 hours before, like nonstop. Oh, I've done 24 hours. Um, when I when I was a lot younger, I used to watch um, like, and I had much more free time. I, I easily watched about five or six films a day. Yeah, yeah. When I this is when you know, it, yeah, at times when I was you know a single. I mean, I am a single Pringle now, but it, you know, when I was like uh, in my sort of late teens, early twenties, yeah, I could easily steam through um, yeah five or six. Next time you're doing a marathon, keep count and we'll see if we can, because it, it seems like six or seven seems to be round about his number as yeah. well. Yeah, and I think, well... Or it, is that just the point where your body gives up? Is that like the un- the unattainable goal? Is yeah, it, you, just fall, you have to fall asleep at some point. <laughs> yeah, there's only so many hours in a day. But I mean, I think in terms of physical ownership, I think I have... Oh, God, I've got I've got to have about like 5,000 DVDs or so. Mm. And um, I have watched the majority of them, um, a lot of them several times over, so... Be interesting. We'll forget this completely, but what would be really interesting is on January first, twenty twenty-three, we give you like a little ticker, a little clicker to keep track. And throughout the year, you click it every single time you've watched a film and see how many you've got through in a year. Because I'm willing to bet it's somewhere near the thousand mark with you. More than likely. Yeah. And then we'll get on BBC News. Well, we'll yeah, get, yeah. You know, yeah. we'll be able to write in and say, look, we can beat that. Also, we have a podcast. Yesterday, Please I... join the premium subscribers and send us some money. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Yes, Yesterday, I watched um, five movies. Well, there you go. So, see, that's like, a start. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, like when it's... If it's a day where I can squeeze it in... If you, you can know. keep that up, or like a, a rough average, say a, a three average a day for 365 days... Then you're, you're pretty much. Well, I mean, there, yes, you know? yesterday wasn't a work day, so I mean, may, may, maybe on a work night, I could yeah, could do two, could do two on a work night. We're going to get you in training, man. I'm going to get you a sweatband and everything. Got to go to fucking bed at some point, mate. <laughs> <laughs> nah. nah. <laughs> <laughs> and my last article this week. Uh, this is from ScreenRant.com. Shit's Creek creator gives hopeful update on movie continuation. After the series' completion in 2020, Dan Levy has shared his thoughts on returning to Shit's Creek for a movie. The series was given a heartfelt conclusion as each character seemed to have a bright future ahead of them, contrasting their rough season one beginnings. While the finale was well-received by viewers, interest in sequels and spin-offs has yet to cease, as fans are desperate to see more from the Rose family and their friends. Seeing such a high demand for more content, last year creator Levy, who also plays David Rose, teased the potential for a Shit's Creek movie. This left many fans hopeful that they would see more from this sitcom family, but Levy doesn't take the decision lightly and was quick to say that he would only return if the right idea came along. The writer felt that the finale gave a beautiful ending to Schitt's Creek and is apprehensive to go back without good reason. But uh, yes, like crib reading from the article here, because again, it goes on and on and on. But yes, he now does actually seem to be really working quite hard on a Schitt's Creek movie. And I, for one, would be quite glad to see it. Yeah, I know you're quite enamored of uh, this show, aren't you? I felt like Shit's Creek actually ended a little bit early, mm. which is rare for a series that doesn't seem like they were pushed by the network. In fact, if anything, the network was pushing for more episodes. But they ended it as sort of a natural beat and a point, and I appreciate that. And the ending was really, really handled well. But I get the feeling there's a lot more in those characters. So yeah, I just wanted to throw this in in, in the sense that I think it's a good idea. I'm a big Shit's Creek fan. And I can absolutely see a movie working. And there's a lot of TV series that I think are brilliant that I wouldn't say that about. I think it's often a mistake to take a series and then do a movie out of it. So many of them have ended in such a flat, boring, uninspired way where the, the writers, you can suddenly see that the writers just weren't used to working in that format. And movie format and TV format writing is so very different. Dan Levy, though, is quite a talented dude. Mm. And I would be very, very interested to see that. So I'm essentially just putting this in here to give him the thumbs up. Sweet. Go That's ahead. Good. I would very much like to see where those characters go next. And uh, all of the actors so far as well have said they're very, very much on board because they're uh, it's apparently a really, really nice production to work on. And, uh, you know, they really had a good time making it. So, yeah, good stuff there, I thought. Yeah, that's a that's a nice little bit of news that yeah. Because yeah. I imagine there are probably other fans that felt the same way that you did. So I would imagine quite, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the uh, I think the audience is most definitely there. It would do even if it was terrible. It would do extremely well. well it's nice that that's being rectified then. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, anyway, yes, uh, Liam has a couple of film reviews this week. Uh, one of which I'm really looking forward to, and the other film I know absolutely nothing about. So uh, whatever order you like, Liam, take us away. Well, um. I am quite a big fan of Alex Garland. I love like uh, 28 Days Later and obviously um, I thought that Ex Machina was fantastic and I know that you were also, um, at, you know, as am I, from, off the back of your recommendation and review, uh, a big fan of Devs. 
Yes, yeah. absolutely. Alex Garland, very, very imaginative uh, writer and director. Um, I just, I love the way that he approaches um, themes, which are typically um, are on the, I don't know, I guess, you know, dystopian sci-fi or generalized dystopian front, you know, technology getting out of hand. Uh, mankind's relationship with all, sorry, should I say humankind's relationship? Don't upset anyone there. <laughs> to, <laughs> nearly, uh, nearly. You know, technology and, you know, the, the potentials of singularity and, you know, uh, yeah, obviously with Ex Machina things, um, you know, uh, passing the Turing test and the, the freaky ramifications that that could bring forth. So I was uh, skipping to the cinema to go and see his latest film, Men. So this is the third film that he has written and directed. And uh, he's sort of veering away from his the science fiction, you know, sci-fi horror slash thriller uh, territory that he has um, become associated with. Although I actually should mention that his debut novel, actually, because he was initially a novelist, his debut novel was The Beach, which has obviously turned into a film with old DiCaprio. Remember The Beach? I do. We talked about it fairly recently. Yeah, that was yeah. written. That was based on a novel by Alex Garland. I did not know. Yeah, that. yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, he wrote it as a critique of like backpack Western backpacking culture. God, he always goes existential, doesn't he? He I, always, I, always wants to go for the big themes. I think he's quite misanthropic in many ways. So <laughs> thumbs up from me. Thumbs yeah. up from the same <laughs> end of this podcast. Yep. So um, yeah, this sees him kind of stepping away from that and going into more of a folk horror, um, sort of. Um, Going on a folk horror escapade, really, which has always been one of my favourite subgenres. So yeah, Alex Garland meets folk horror. I was there with bells on. So we got Jessie Buckley. I love Jessie Buckley. Um, she was brilliant in. I was thinking of ending things. Brilliant in Beast. Um, <laughs> admittedly, those are the other only other two things I've seen her in. But I'd like to watch Wild Rose at some point. She's a wonderful actress, and I think this is also the first instance I've seen of her using her natural brogue because she is a fair. Paddy Maiden, at least I think it is her natural accent. Otherwise, she rather naturally does a convincing Irish accent because she is fucking Irish. But uh, she plays Harper Marlowe. And um, in the opening of the film, we see Harper standing in her kitchen with a sort of shell-shocked, very distressed look on her face. And she's got a little bit of blood underneath her nose. And the, I mean, the lighting in it is, is amazing because it's all these kind of deep red and orange colours. Like she's bathed in almost what looks like a sort of a, almost an apocalyptic light. And uh, it's raining outside the slow motion rainfall and, and she's looking. And as she's looking out, she sees a man just falling past the window, facing inwards. And as he descends, he's look, he looks her straight in the eye. And... Um, yeah, she just looks, I mean, she looks semi-catatonic. And um, then it cuts to the title. And we find out that um, this man who fell past the window was James, who was Harper's husband. Very emotionally abusive and at times physically abusive pathological narcissist of a husband who just relentlessly wore her down, gaslighted her, threatened her. Not a very nice individual in any way, shape or form. We find out through flashbacks that she uh, wanted a divorce and he pulls out the old card of like, well, if you do that, I'm just going to kill myself. And um, in a very scene that's acted with immense power by Buckley, she just takes him to task just about how, just how fucked up and evil of a thing that is to threaten. But he goes ahead with it and obviously the poor girl is traumatised. So... To try and clear her head, she's booked herself two weeks away in this little sort of Airbnb cottage in the village of Cotson, which is in Hertfordshire. She drives down there, very lovely, you know, idyllic green, you know, grand sweeping, you know, I suppose what people would refer to as Merry England. It's very, it's, it's very much um, iconically representative of that. And she arrives at her destination. And uh, as she's making her way through, it's a very gorgeous-looking place, like a cottage with, uh, cottage with um, a nice sort of gravel foreground and um, like a fountain and great, great built-up stone walls, very um, old-fashioned and uh, kind of cryptic-looking in a beautiful way. And she makes her way through the courtyard <clears throat> and she sees a tree that is blooming with these very delicious apples. And she impulsively goes up and plucks an apple from the tree and bites into it 
And yes, I know that there is some rather evident symbolism there. Um, as she's doing this, she's being watched from one of the windows of the house by a rather sort of stern and not relatively confused looking man who kind of shakes his head and then goes to the front door and uh, greets Harper and introduces himself as Jeffrey. Now, Jeffrey is played by Rory Kinnear and he is the very kind of old-fashioned, very upper crust, very friendly, quite eccentric, you know, full of awkward banter country gentleman who's just like, you know, no, 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 I, I will get your bags from your car, you know, go in the kitchen, make yourself at home, I won't have you doing anything, you know, like, the, you know, the sugar's here and the tea's there where you'd expect to find it, you know, don't worry about it. And uh, Very friendly child, maybe a little bit over-familiar and a bit bombastic, but not, seems nice enough. And so, you know, Harper's looking around and Jeffrey kind of, um, he gives her the tour of the house and um, he said, you know, he makes like, so I'm not, um, I wouldn't really call them creepy remarks, but he kind of puts his foot in it, saying like, oh, you know, ladies, watch what you flush. We have a septic tank. Oh, that sort of thing. You know, and uh, then he inquires about her husband and she tells him that um, she made the booking under her married name by mistake. And he just kind of looks a bit sheepish and he's like, oh, well, you know, I'll leave you to it. You know, see you later. If you need anything, you know where I am. So he goes off. She's a little bit, you know, she just wants to unwind. She thinks he seems nice enough. You know, uh, and, but she's just looking to chill out and enjoy this weekend. She takes a walk into the surrounding woodlands. Really uh, just beautiful locale. The cinematography in this is by, um, it's by Garland's sort of resident uh, director of photography, Rob Hardy, and he has done an absolutely phenomenal job here. Um, she goes into yeah, these beautiful woodlands and she finds this abandoned railway tunnel. And she goes um, underneath it and she stands at one in one entrance and um, she begins to sort of, uh, you know, like, ha, 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 like making uh, echoes mm -hmm. of, um, she's like playing a sort of echoing game with herself and she's doing this and sort of deriving a good modicum of entertainment from it. But then she sees a figure just suddenly loom up from one end of the tunnel and stare at her and then quickly pick up pace in her direction. Obviously, Harper is very freaked out. She runs off. She finds a field. She kind of gets her bearings. Um, she decides to take a few pictures of the surroundings, and then she, like her camera actually captures the gentleman who was following her, which was a man who is completely and utterly bollock naked. So she goes, oh, fuck. Hightails it back to her home, has a video call with a friend of hers. The same man appears in her garden. Now, the interesting thing about this is that that man and Jeffrey and every other man in this village is played by Rory Kinnear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like it. Which includes <laughs> um, a very aggressive and creepy 10-year-old boy, an even more creepy and gaslighty and rather perverse local vicar, um, a policeman who just seems very indifferent about Harper's like kind of nervousness and defensiveness. She has essentially ended, she, she has ended up in a village where, you know, the men are all the same, figuratively and literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, men. Okay. Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear, their performances are absolutely fucking brilliant. Honestly, the pair of them, they are give them 10 out of 10 if they're acting effort here. I mean, Buckley is just so, she's wonderful um, emotional articulation. She's great at um, sort of nervousness and, uh, you know, kind of social queasiness and sorrow and rage. She is a, she's a blinding actress. I have a lot of time and respect for her. I think she's great at her craft. She excels here. Rory Kinnear playing about six or seven different and, you know, very distinguishable characters with the exception of the fact that they all carry his face. <laughs> Does a, oh, mate, he, he is on fire here. It's, it's excellent. The, the, the commitment that the two leads have put into this work I was thoroughly exhilarated by it. I, I loved their work in it. As I say, um, Robin Hardy, um, his, or maybe Rob Hardy, sorry, uh, his uh, photography is absolutely sublime. I'm not entirely sure where they shot this because as far as I'm aware, Kotzen is a fictitious 
Hertfordshire Village. I maybe may have not done my homework on that, but wherever they shot it is rural English locale, and it is absolutely gorgeous. Really captures uh, the British countryside in the most splendid and rather intoxicating way. The soundtrack, excellent soundtrack. Love Garden's direction, and just you know the the way that this uh, burns slowly and the suspense. That, I mean, the, the, the aforementioned scene where I talk about her wandering into the railway tunnel. The suspense of that scene was. I felt like this. Like, all these, like you know, like when you get uh, not just goosebumps, like this mad, this really intense kind of like frisson in the cinema. It was just this, like the um, the anticipation that something very freaky was going to happen was so acute and um, sort of almost overwhelming in a way that I just got such a buzz off of. And the film is replete with a lot of moments like that. The only thing I will say about it is that the final half hour of this film goes fucking mental. Like, as in a way, look. I would expect. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, like me and everyone else, like full investment, as I say, all of the boxes are being thoroughly ticked. The final 30 minutes of this film I was sat there and I looked across like very uh, briefly at a few people on, you know, uh, the same row as me and on row behind. And I just saw their fate. You know, it was one of those like, it was the ultimate what the fuck series of faces. I mean, this film, I won't, I can't say anything about it. You just have to see for yourself. But it goes down a whole like, what the fucking hell was that? And not in a necessarily negative way but not in a necessarily positive way either. <laughs> this is a film where the overwhelming majority of it, I liked immensely. And then, yeah, the final 30 minutes, I'm still deliberating on it because it's just fucking barking mad. But is men a recommendation? Yeah, I would say it absolutely is. But brace yourself. And uh, if you'd like to write in with your opinions and theories, I would very be very excited to hear them. There's nothing I love more than a batshit ending, so I'm all over this. I'm oh, definitely, mate, it, definitely watching honest, this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> please, oh, please, oh, take um, take your uh, your fair lady to see it because I'd also love to hear her reaction to this. <laughs> this is absolutely one of those. But yes, men, pretty much a thumbs up. But yeah, it's um, there's a lot going on. <laughs> okay, and then next up in um, something that's a bit of a 180 from what I care to go for usually, but I couldn't resist. I watched the fifth and most recent entry in the Rise of the Foot Soldier franchise. You know how much I love those films. That much <laughs> beloved on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. so English geezers doing English yeah. things. Yeah. The first Rise of the Foot Soldier um, film that came out in 2007, which purports to be an autobiography. No, sorry. It purports to be a biopic of one Carlton Leach who graduated from... Um, inner city firm, West Ham football hooligan, thug or foot soldier, to uh, nightclub doorman, to drug dealer, to general enforcer and gangland associate, etc., etc. And it follows his path for, um, I don't know, about an hour and a half or so. And then it just veers into the tale of the Ritterton Range Rover murders. These are the murders of. Craig Rolfe, Patrick Tate, and Tony Tucker, who were three Essex drug dealers that Colton uh, had a friendship with, or so he says, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of crime memorists and investigators who say that he, rather like Dave Courtney, greatly embellishes his involvement in the British organised crime scene. So um, I'm not here saying that he is a bullshitter because I don't have the evidence for that, but his uh, stories are contentious. Let's say, to put it mildly. So you had the first Rise of the Foot Soldier and the second Rise of the Foot Soldier that followed Colton. And then entries three, four, and five deal pretty much solely with uh, the stories of the three men who were brutally deaded down a snowy Essex lane in December 1995. So Origins, which is the fifth one, is an origin story of Tony Tucker who was essentially seen as the leader of this trio of drug dealers. And uh, as the film begins, well, the film begins with him on a night out in Romford being ejected from a nightclub. And then we get into a flashback of him um, a few years earlier where he saves uh, a young lad 
who him and his girlfriend are being attacked by a group of thugs and Tony Tucker steves in and kicks some ass and saves the guy's life. And then we also find out that Tony was um, in the military, served in the Falklands. I couldn't actually find any veracity of that. I mean, he would have been he would have been able to, like he was born in 1957, I believe, but I didn't come across any military records. But we see Tony Tucker returning from the Falklands as a young man. And it seems that in the coming few years, set trying to settle back down in Essex, he is just a very angry um, and just rather um, restless ball of rage. And um, he's got all of this pent-up energy that he doesn't really know where to put it. And he can have a row and he's a bit of a naughty boy, but he's kind of got his code. And um, so he goes to work for the grandfather of this young lad who's um, asked, well, he didn't really stop him from getting his ass kicked, but he kicked the asses of the thugs who were doing him over and managed to save his life. He gets given a job by that guy's granddad, played by none other than P.H. Moriarty, who people will know as Hatchet Harry from Lockstock or Razors from The Long Good Friday. Very um, intimidating and sinister-looking cockney fella. Has he still got his moustache? Yes, he does. That's the signature moustache, yeah. that is. Yeah. Still got his moustache, still got his, like, you know, he still sounds the same. Still sounds exactly the same. But uh, yeah, he gets given a job on the door of this guy's nightclub and he's gonna, he proves his loyalty. And then we see over the way that uh, there's a nightclub opened in uh, Basildon called Raquel's, which is um, ran by one uh, David Sims, played by Keith Allen. David is having an absolute mare in his place. There's all these fucking ICF wankers coming in all the time who are connected to local organised crime. They're like, they keep like beating people up. They keep chopping up Charlie on the counter and snort it off. They're sexually harassing um, the girls hanging out in there, not just the punters, but also the waitresses and all that. He's having an absolute nightmare and none of his door staff seems to be able to want to do anything about it. So what David does is he hires one Bernard O'Mahony. Now, Bernard O'Mahony in real life is um, an absolute rank brummy. He's like, he has got one of the thickest Birmingham accents I've ever heard. Ex-soldier, ex-doorman, and he was involved with the Essex boys. He's an ex-gangster. He's a real guy. And um, he's like, very, very Birmingham. He talks like, you know, he's very, very brummy. So who do they cast as him? Vinnie Jones. <laughs> Vinnie Jones. Who, oh, no. Who makes absolutely no effort. What's, I mean, he, his build is fairly similar to Bernard O'Mahoney's. You know, a big, he's a big kind of broadly built bald guy. I don't know what's worse, like him not attempting the accent or Vinnie Jones trying to do a Brummie accent. I, I guess they went with the lesser of two Vinnie, Vinnie, Vinnie Jones just retains his natural accent. Of course he does, yeah. So, um, yeah, David Sims hires Bernard, played by Vinnie Jones, because he hears, he's, he's got a reputation for being able to sort cunts out. And uh, Bernard comes in and David says, those guys over there are making my life a living hell. And, you know, Bernard's just like, give us a minute. Goes over, fucking sorts him out. You know, he gets a reputation as being quite an odd fucker. Um, and then Bernard finds out that Tony Tucker is running the doors for this uh, Hollywood's place in Ilford. So he goes over to Tony and proposes a, uh, a sort of door firm partnership. And, um, you know, they, they kind of, they seem to kind of uh, meet interests um, quite amicably. Um, for a percentage. And then um, while they're milling around in uh, Raquel's one night after getting it up and running, they meet Craig Rolfe, who again is played by fucking Roland Manukian, otherwise known as, I think his only other role I know him is his Zebedee in the football factory. So, you know, he's always plays a little cunt. He does it quite, he does do it fairly well. <laughs> but yeah, playing Craig Rolfe, once again, every time Craig, I think with the exception of Neil Maskell in Bonded by Blood, Craig Rolfe is just always this absolute fuck up, which I believe is relatively close to his real life character. <laughs> but yeah, Craig Rolfe is in there and like, he glasses a bloke and Bernard goes over and goes, oh, you fucking, you can't do that. You can't do that. But he manages to sort of bullshit and calm him down. Then Craig gets very friendly with Tony Tucker. And then it turns out that a guy that Tony and Bernard fall out with mutually is connected to Patrick Tate who then comes along and there's a little bit of a scuffle, but it gets sorted out. And Tony's like, I think I can find a way we can all make some serious fucking money. So then they start basically operating drug trafficking around the nightclub, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
I mean, what can you say? The Essex boys, there is ample evidence. The Essex boys were a pair of low-rent, completely failed, drug-addicted, deluded bullies who pissed off the wrong people and they got murdered. All these films, they depict them as these really fucking hard cunts who can turn people over. They're not fucking frightened of anyone and they're really dangerous and wild and crazy guys. It's bollocks. It's absolute bollocks. But the indestructibility that these guys are portrayed with just makes me howl with laughter. Um, Terry Stone as Tony Tucker has still got this ridiculous fucking syrup that he's adding all of them. He looks absolutely absurd. These are guys in their 50s who were playing guys at the time who were supposed to be in their late 20s, early 30s. And it is just diabolical. The, the, the violence is so over the top and so unbelievable. These guys were nowhere near as fucking tough as they're depicted. It is total, like, you know, charlie up fucking Zoo Nuts magazine, single-figure brain cell, lowest common denominator fucking trash. But I found it immensely entertaining. In fact, I find all, I find all the Rise of the Foot Soldier films entertaining for the wrong reason. And again, just, uh, just to sign off, this is why somebody, not only do you need to read it, but somebody with the chops and a decent crew needs to adapt Judas Pig by Horace Silver. You want to know a lot of work about actual decent villains in Blighty in the 80s, really fucking heavy-duty, scary people? That's where you look. Stop making stuff and going on about the fucking Essex boys. They I were, know the adaptations at this point, there's millions They were of three, them. even like people have written articles, they're like, I knew these guys, they were, they were fucking losers. The Range Rover was borrowed in a higher agreement because they were so heavily in debt. They were shit at drug dealing. They bullied, <laughs> they bullied Joe Public relentlessly. They beat up women. They would only attack people when they were mob bandits or they would only go after people who were like law-abiding, vulnerable people who wouldn't stand up for themselves. These guys were not Fucking gangsters. They were a they were a trio of complete arseholes. And they scared some very genuinely dangerous people who like walks the walk. And they got fucking topped. That's that's it. Happened it's happened so many times every in every country in the world. Stop make 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 if you're gonna make a true crime film, you wanna make a true crime film about villains, make it about some proper fucking villains. Read like Judas Pig of a Charity Committee, Horace Silver, Jimmy. Read that, so, you know, adapt that. Fucking, you know, I know they did Once Upon a Time in London with like, you know, about um, uh, fucking, what is it, uh, Jack Comer and Billy Hill. The film wasn't really that good, but they were at least proper villains. You know, stop making these fucking movies about these three helmets. They're not worth it. <laughs> but did I have a good laugh? Yeah, you're right, I did. So... A very ironic recommendation. If, if you haven't seen Rise of Foot Soldier, if you just haven't got anything better to do and you just want to watch a, like, a, a ludicrously thick, uh, testosterone-fueled, knuckle-dragging like just portrayal of utter moronism, I couldn't recommend them highly enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a very specific yeah. set of circumstances you're, but you're yes. putting forward there. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so in a way, you know, after a fashion, two... Um, recommendations this week, although for markedly divergent reasons. So, yes. You know. <laughs> okay, then. So, TV of the week, and it's a big one this week. Big old balls. It is the, uh, well, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> Big-ass balls and a big-ass dick. Sure, why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I promised I'd review it last week. I promised I'd review it when, we, uh, when I got back from Edinburgh, rather. And uh, yeah, it's the series everyone's been talking about at the moment. We are going to be talking about Stranger Things Season 4. Although, of course, with a sentimentalist caveat, which uh, immediately throws me for a loop because... It's difficult sometimes when you get to review something really big and really you know, zeitgeisty and of the moment and everyone's talking about it. But we are well aware, or I am well aware at the very least, that there will be people listening to this podcast that either haven't watched Stranger Things at all or haven't watched season four yet or maybe they're halfway through and they're like midway through season two and they're trying to catch up to get to season four. Yeah. So I can assure you from the very start that there will be no spoilers mm. for Stranger Things here. What I'm going to do is give you a basic setup of how Stranger Things starts. And then going into my review of season four, I'm going to talk about it in very, very general terms. So no spoilers, don't worry. Um, but yeah, let's kick off with yeah where Stranger Things kicks off. Just for those of you that haven't caught up yet, you fools. And then, <laughs> there's one of them sitting opposite me at this very moment, actually. So there is, there is indeed. This helps because I don't want to spoil it for you. I'm a I'm, fool. I'm absolutely desperate for you to watch this show <laughs> because you would absolutely love it. And I will get into why. But yes, 
Stranger Things starts out with, uh, well, we meet several children living in the 80s in the small fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. Uh, we meet Mike, played by Finn Wolfhard, uh, Dustin, played by Gatta Matarazzo, uh, Lucas, played by Caleb McLaughlin, and Will, played by Noah Schnapp. And they're a bunch of young kids, as I said, living in an 80s small town, Indiana, and they meet up regularly to play D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, of an evening. And they've got a campaign going at the moment where they are fighting a mysterious monster called the Demogorgon. And one evening, they uh, they sort of have a, an argument between each other. It's a rainy night. The campaign sort of goes in different directions. The kids have all got their own sort of drama going on. And Will, in particular, uh, leaves on his bike in the middle of a rainstorm. And the next day, the kids are distraught to find that he has gone missing. And so his mother, Joyce, played by Winona Ryder, and the local police chief, Jim Hopper, played by David Harbour, uh, begin to search for missing Will and find out what's gone wrong. Uh, this is all compounded by the arrival of a young girl found wandering in the woods. Uh, the children refer to her as Eleven because she has a Eleven tattooed on her arm. She's wandering in like a medical gown. And they quickly learn that she may well possess telekinetic powers. And this is all compounded by Joyce and Jim's discovery that something very nefarious, evil, twisted and supernatural may be going on at the local power plant. So, I mean, there's more characters than that. There's more to it than that. But I mean, I feel like I'm talking to half of the audience where they've seen Stranger Things. They go, yeah, yeah, we know all of this. And the other half of the audience, which is essentially going, hmm, sounds intriguing. If that sounds intriguing to you, watch fucking Stranger Things, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot's been made about this show ever since it came out. It was one of Netflix's biggest releases. I mean, it came out right after uh, House of Cars and Orange is the New Black in terms of Netflix making original content. And it was brilliant from the get-go. I mean, a lot's been made of the sheer number of 80s references, how it captures this sort of 80s world. It's got this synth soundtrack that's very Giorgio Moroder, um, crossed with John Carpenter. It's got the feel right. And what it does more than anything else is it sells you an 80s that never existed. It sells you a version of the 80s that only existed in 80s movies, mm. which I've always thought is such a clever thing Retro to do. wave. Yeah, yeah, so. pretty much. It's, it's the 80s you imagine through rose-tinted glasses in yeah. your head. It hits all of those marks very nicely. But anyway, I'll, I'll get more into that in a minute. Every new season of Stranger Things scares me, and not for the reason that it's scary. Every first episode of a new season scares me because it does things that I know traditionally break TV shows. It introduces new characters into tight-knit character groups that we've already grown to know and love. It makes its format bigger. It makes its plot bigger. It makes the special effects bigger. It does all of those things that shows tend to do right up until the point that the show bursts. Mm. The show can't take it anymore. Suddenly, the walls come falling down. The scales fall from your eyes and you go, oh no, they've pushed it too far. Every first episode of a new season of Stranger Things is like this. It relies on a load of plot setup and exposition, where the kids are at in this point in their life. Now we see you know, over the course of these seasons, their journey through um, pretty well, not quite preschool, but through like the bottom of middle school, the way through to high school, that kind of stuff, um, into character reactions, relationships that start to form. Um, scary new things like girls, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. All that uh, Stand By Me kind of teen yeah. drama kind of thing weaves in. Every first episode of Stranger Things does this. And every time I sit back and go, ah, have they broken it? I'm pleased to report, no. No. No, they haven't. Every single time this show turns up and scares me with all the things that I know eventually breaks a show. Every single time by the second or third episode, I go, nope. They've still fucking got it. Mm. Season four of Stranger Things is the best that it's ever been. Wow. And I'm talking about volume one, by the way. So as of recording today, we're on the uh, 6th of June at the moment. Uh, this has now been split season four into two seasons. We've got volume one, which is what I've watched currently. This is seven episodes in a row, uh, most of which are an hour and 15 minutes, apart from the last episode, which is an hour and a half long. On July the 1st, we're going to get one more, I believe, hour and a half long episode. And then one more episode after that that's a full two and a half hours long. Jesus Christ. Which is essentially a movie they're yes. doing at the end of this season. It's also worth pointing out this is the penultimate season. This isn't even the, you know, the big finale kind of thing. There is going to be another season after this one. Again, scares the shit out of me as a TV reviewer because I go, 
most shows don't survive that. Most shows don't pull that off. Obviously, I haven't seen the last two episodes yet and I will review them on the podcast. I will review that final movie piece of this season. But so far, wow, what a season. I mean, it's the writing that impresses me more than anything else with this. Everyone talks about the great child performances and they're right to because they are brilliant child performances. Uh, Midi Bobby Brown as Eleven in particular is obviously the breakout star of this, but every single kid does a perfect turn. That way that really makes you feel nostalgic for those Amblin films. You know, the Steven Spielberg, E.T., all of that sort of stuff. You know, it's got that level of child acting in it where you think, oh my God, these are like stars of the future. They really are sinking to their role so beautifully. Everyone points that out. That's brilliant. The 80s references as well are so spot on. And again, I think it's so clever that they're going for a nostalgic version of the 80s rather than the actual thing. It keeps itself one foot in realism, one foot in fantasy with a bit more of a dip towards fantasy. And I love that. And then it's stuck within and it's kept that balance so consistently throughout it. But the thing that impresses me more than anything else is the character work. It's that thing of introducing new characters every season and you initially recoil. You initially go, oh, I'm not sure if I like this one. I'm not sure if that's going to break the group, the group dynamic. By the time you get to the next season or the, by the time you get to the end of that season, they have become absolutely integral into the cast is really, really brilliant character writing. Every single individual character in this, and there are a lot of them, and quite a few of them I've left out, but every single individual character gets a, a load of backstory, a load of you know, something to do, something to pull them into the narrative, a side story that's going on in the background, the way it switches between its A plot and its B plot without ever losing the balance between the two. So the fact that you almost kind of don't notice you don't notice that it's filling you in on character backstory and interpersonal drama and things like that because it doesn't focus on it. It knows that you as an audience member want to focus on the supernatural and the spooky goings on. It knows that's the A plot. It knows it always wants to get back to it. The B stuff is just there to give you that little bit of extra weight, that little bit of extra jeopardy. So when these kids or when these characters do get into trouble, it means so much more. They're sneaking story in where you don't expect it. And it does it so well, you don't notice they're doing it. Similarly, going back to those 80s references for a, a moment, it handles its references in such a subtle way that I think if you never saw a movie before 1995 and you were watching this show, you wouldn't realize there were references there. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know when you watch something sometimes and you go, hmm, that's obviously a reference, but I don't get what that's in reference to. This show integrates them so well that if you're a big movie fan and a buff and you know, like pretty much everybody listening to this will be, you know what I mean? If you're that way inclined, you'll be able to look at it and go, yeah, that's a bit like Stand By Me and that's a little bit diehard and that's a little bit, and you'll be able to pick all these 80s movies out of it. But what it does, rather than just going, hey guys, we're doing a bit. This is a bit like Terminator. This is a bit like E.T. Hey guys, we're doing a bit. Do you remember that film? Rather than doing that, it sneaks in the idea and then it subverts it so that the idea feels new and fresh. <laughs> so there, there have been references in this where I've only realized there are references the next day when I've been thinking about the episode, going, hang on a minute, that's a bit from a Stephen King novel or something like that. But it's so subtle, it's so integral, it never just relies on doing a reference. It never does that wink to the camera, that little nod kind of thing. It's got its tongue in its cheek, but so gently you almost can't notice it. They are references. They are there pulling from 80s source material. But the way it handles them is just so integrated into it that it's seamless. Absolutely seamless. And again, that speaks to the sheer cleverness of the writing. Season four, I mean, wow, have they upped the horror, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I rewatched Stranger Things recently in anticipation of the new season. And um, I was quite surprised by it, actually. It was scarier than I remember it being. And my now teenage daughter is watching it as well. And she's got into her sort of 80s horror and things like that. So, you know, she said, can she watch Stranger Things? And we went, yeah, you know. Me and my partner looked at each other and went, yeah, you know, I mean, it's scary, but there's nothing too hardcore in there. I mean, it'll have you pulling up the covers up to your knees. You know what I mean? But there's nothing there that's going to keep you awake at night. Rewatching it, yes, there's definitely stuff in the earlier seasons that does that. It really does get creepier than I remember it being. In season four, particularly, and you'll know what I mean as soon as you start watching it, at the end of the first episode, it goes flat out horror. I mean, it, it actually started to scare me the way they were doing it. And I was just like, <laughs> me and my partner looked at each other and went, oh my God, she's been really, really amped up to watch the new season of Stranger Things. And we can't stop her now, can we? That would almost be cruel at this point. But Jesus, it's going to give you nightmares. Jesus. I mean, they really have upped the jeopardy and they've really gone for crunchy body horror. 
Wow. In kind of a recognizably Cronenberger, maybe even, I don't know, there's some modern horror that I could reference to it as well. I don't want to make direct comparisons because I don't want to give anything away, but it is, uh, it's crunchy and it's shocking and it makes you recoil back from the screen a little bit, which I wasn't expecting out of it. I mean, I'm sort of glad it's there. Uh, my daughter has been uh, watching season four and she's, thankfully, we haven't had a getting up in the middle of the night or anything like that, but we were a little bit nervous about it because it's very... It's very graphic. In when a you very say modern horror, way. you're talking about someone like Ari Aster. Yeah, yeah, it's along those so, lines. So it's 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 pretty uh, brutal then. <laughs> brutal and mind bending, and uh, yeah, distorted faces and things like that. I mean, Stranger Things, as I said, like the whole way through, it's actually been quite scary at points in a recognizably thrill ride kind of way. You know, in the way like uh, '80s action horror and a horror thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you know it's all sort of plastic effects and all that kind of stuff, but you're kind of watching it going, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it sort of makes you smile going, oh, yeah. that's creepy. In this one, it's more flat out like, oh, holy shit. Now you're actually really- That's fucking creepy. <laughs> the, the horror's grown up with the kids, I think, which is a really, really interesting that's way nice, to do yeah. it. But they, they've really upped it nicely. It's now also gone much, much bigger. It's gone international. We're not just in Hawkins anymore. We've gone out to California and we're going out to- uh, Justin to- Hawkins? Sorry? Justin Hawkins. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's the darkness. <laughs> yeah, the it? darkness front man. <laughs> yeah. We're not Justin Hawkins anymore. Yeah. But yeah, we, we're not Justin in Indiana anymore. We've got bits in California and we've got another bit in another locale, which I'm not going to say for spoiler reasons because if you're up to date with season three, that might give a few things away. I'm fairly certain I danced across that very badly. But anyway, never mind. Yeah, Stranger Things. Um, you asked me a little while ago when I was reviewing Mad Men on the premium. Mad Men was that show that I missed out of the golden age of television. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I watched it all. I did my review on the premium. I talked about how fantastic it was and we reminisced about Mad Men and The Sopranos and Deadwood and all those, you know, the, the golden age, those shows that really broke the television yeah, format. Yeah, yeah. It's now changed into what we recognize television to be these days. And you asked me an interesting question. You said, is there any TV series currently running that can hold a candle to any of those? And we had quite a morose conversation about, I, to my discredit, I couldn't think of any that competed on that level. I'm a fool because I should have said Stranger Things. Yeah. And season four proves it. Season four absolutely proves it. it it's, the show is now stretched to its absolute limits and yet it still works just as well as it ever did. In fact, it works better than it ever did. Every time it blows its bubble bigger, I worry about it bursting. It doesn't burst. It gets stronger and it gets better. There's also a fantastically, and I mean fantastically written twist in this season. I had my own pet theory going through it as to what was going on. The way it turns out at the end, the way all the character pieces lock in together and bring in pieces right from the very start of the show makes so much more sense than my theory. It's one of those ones where I almost wanted to clap at the very end of the of volume one, going, yeah, you know what? That's better than how I had it in my head. That actually makes perfect sense. It is just, it's Stephen King level writing and it's trying very deliberately to be Stephen King level writing and it's succeeding every single time. Damn. Stranger Things is fucking brilliant. And in 10 years <clears> time, <throat> in 20 years time, hopefully we'll still be talking about it. The reason I say hopefully is I've got my fingers crossed, my toes crossed, and my ass cheeks crossed. They're going to be able to pull off these next two episodes and the film at the end of it. I've got a funny feeling they will, but it makes me very, very nervous. But Stranger Things always makes me nervous, <laughs> and it always manages to pull it off. I really hope I'm not sitting here in a month's time going, you know my review? Yeah, they fucked it. <laughs> you know, but I, I've got a feeling with this level of quality, I've got a feeling they might just pull it off, Which in, in which case it will make it the ultimate rare show. The show that I, can, I can't really think of another one that's gone for movies at the ends of its run that actually make sense, that work, that feel right. If it manages to do that, it's going to cement its place in media history, I think. It's stunning, stunning stuff. Damn, historic programming. Mm, you absolutely... Liam, you would... I know, I, no, I know. I know I've appealed to you before. I know I've appealed to you before. As a movie buff as well. You would, yeah, oh no. you would so be in love with this. You would so be in love with it. It's everything you like put together and pitch perfect. Yeah, I need to, I just spend I need to spend less time watching shit like, you know, terrible Charles Bronson films from the eighties and like. Yeah, don't watch <laughs> Death Wish Two again. What, what, what are you doing, man? Watch fucking Stranger Things. <laughs> and please watch it before it gets spoiled for you as well. Because yeah. there are some big reveals in this season and they're 
they're worth waiting for. They're worth building up to. And that's why I'm very careful to talk about it in, in general sense. But please, please, please watch it. I know, it's, I'm uh, just being a silly fucker. It's, it's landmark television. And I don't often get to say that. Yeah. Yeah, damn, man. Okay, well, to finish off then, I mean, it creates a great trivia section as well because, I mean, 80s trivia. We've done 80s trivia before. It's not like we're ever going to run out of it. (laughs) (laughs) The 80s was a really interesting decade, particularly in America. And I feel like we're all kind of, we all feel familiar with it because of the 80s films. We, I mean, I was born in 1987. I got three years of the 80s and I grew up in the UK. And yet, I feel some sort of nostalgia and kinship with 80s America. Because that was the media we can see. Well, I mean, American kids our age would have had, like, we would have had virtually identical um, media experiences. Yeah, yeah, so, I think so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, this is just general 80s trivia, bits I pulled from the internet, things I thought were fun. Let's start out with this one. The original Game Boy had only five games available in the United States. Nintendo first rolled out the Game Boy to a Japanese market on April 21st, 1989, bringing it stateside just a few months later in July of the same year. However, the playing options were pretty limited. Users in the United States could only choose from Super Mario Land, Alleyway, Baseball, Tetris, and Tennis. Japanese audiences also got a game called Yaku Man, but neither Tennis or Tetris. What the fuck is Alleyway? I know, I'm going to have to look that up. (laughs) I love my video game history. I have no idea what it is. I love the uh, the creativity behind tennis as well. <laughs> What's well, for alleyway? You know, stand in an alleyway. See how long you can you can stand it. <laughs> and I wonder as well. I know um, Japanese video game audiences absolutely love puzzle games. It's interesting they didn't get Tetris. Yeah, Tetris is sort of the ultimate puzzle game, isn't it? Somebody uh, that that sounds like a purposeful omission. Does that would just yeah. flip in the book? That would be racist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, The Rubik's Cube was originally called the Hungarian Magic Cube. (laughs) When it first hit the market in 1977, the popular toy was dubbed the Hungarian Magic Cube. Hoping for something catchier, however, the name was changed to Rubik's Cube in 1980, and it managed to sell 390 million cubes over the next 29 years. I don't know, like Hungarian Magic Cube actually sounds more um, ominous and a bit... It sounds a bit... It sounds a cult, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it sounds like, you know, it's like, oh, Hungarian Magic Cube. It's like, oh, you know, the the lament configuration from Hellraiser. It's just like there's something a bit weird and spooky about that. But, it's, yeah, that I would have much preferred that. I have a theory that every household that was around during the 80s and 90s, if you search that household you know, hard enough, if you go into the attic or whatever, there will be a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, I've got, I've got a Rubik's Cube. I yeah. Know, you know, I mean, loads, loads of people have fucking Rubik's Cube. I wonder how many people listening have got a Rubik's Cube somewhere nearby or, you know, in their parents' garage or somewhere like have that. Have you ever beat a Rubik's Cube? No, I was never any good at them. I could get like two sides and that was yeah. about it. I tried, I remember, I do remember one day uh, trying it out for hours and hours and then I was just like, for fuck's sake. Yeah, I, I, I wonder how many houses, back to it, yeah. I wonder how many houses have a smashed Rubik's Cube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, This is amazing. In the 1980s, the Naval Investigative Service undertook a massive and futile search for a woman named Dorothy in the Chicago area after hearing gay men refer to themselves as friends of Dorothy. They believed she was at the center of a ring of gay military personnel. (laughs) I love how literal that is. I mean, how thick do you have to be? Yeah. Who is this Dorothy? (laughs) And why is she corrupting our good American naval men? How many people do you reckon like rang up and said like, you know, hello, Judy Garland? Yeah. It's like, no, that can't be right. <laughs> There's a literal woman called Dorothy and she's turning, she's turning sailors gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's a, there's your next uh, Stranger Things villain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great B-movie plot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is quite cool. This explains a lot, actually. I've often wondered about this. Duracell, outside of the USA, airs commercials featuring a Duracell bunny, while inside of the US, only Energizer features a bunny. This is because the Duracell bunny predates the Energizer bunny, and in 1980, Duracell failed to renew their trademark in the US, so Energizer trademarked it instead. Oh, well. I've often wondered about it. You know when Americans talk about the Energizer bunny? Yeah. And here it's the Duracell bunny. Yeah, they forgot to renew the copyright. 
And then the Jason nicked it. She was reminded, remember that bit in Gross Point Blank where John Cusack said he dreamed that he was the Energizer Bunny and Alan Markin's like, it's a terrible dream, it's a depressing dream, it's got no brain, it's got no anima. <laughs> just keeps banging on these mean little symbols and going and going. <laughs> uh, this is a kind of a, a bizarre one. Stickers for your car that said baby on board were very popular in the 1980s. But according to a 2012 study, one in 20 drivers blame such stickers for obscuring their vision and causing accidents. What? Yeah, the, the, the little yellow sign, baby on board. Well, so people who were behind the car with that sticker. Well, no, I guess if you're looking in your rear view mirror, it's in the way. Isn't well, it? Fucking put it somewhere more sensible when you don't. I've never got just... that. That's such a sanctimonious thing to put in your car as well. Like, oh, I was planning on ramming you off the road, but now I know there's a baby on board. I'm going to be much more careful. Yeah, I always thought like, is, is it too well? I don't know. Like, I mean, if 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 it if the intent, if the utility of the baby on board signs is is a gloat, it's a very weird one. I, I was, oh, like those fucking stickers where you get like, we are the proud parents yeah. of a bloody 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 blah. Like the ones where it's like stick figures and it's yeah. got every member of the family on it. It's like, why yeah. would you stick? I just I don't know. Car? Baby on board. I just I mean, I thought to myself in the past. Well, I mean, if you're trying to dissuade a potential like, road rager. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think road rage. I don't think anybody that's prepared to either pull you out of your car and beat you up or ram you off the road is going to look at the sticker or the, the little sign hanging and change his mind. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't see the purpose. But it will get in the way when you're to, you know you're backing into your driveway and you knock over your garden wall. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> the reason for TV shows airing the message "We'll be back after these messages" is due to a mandate by the FCC from the 1980s. The committee sought to help children differentiate between TV shows and commercials. Oh wow! Okay, because that was the beginning, really, of um, you know, like eighty Saturday morning cartoons and advertising to kids, wasn't it? All those adverts for cheap plastic crap that was never as good as the advert made it look. Yeah, you probably had like loads of excited kids like plonked in front of Transformers or something, and then like some woman's taking a pot pie out of the oven going like, buy such and such brand for your... Well, it's interesting. Transformers is a really good example, actually, because that is a a cartoon created primarily to sell toys. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think most of them were, to be honest. The idea was selling you a a piece of plastic crap, wasn't it? Although I have to say, I very much enjoyed my Transformers. Well, yeah, exactly. Kids were psyched about it far more than they would be, you know, with a a one-minute clip of a woman... Arson about with Tupperware in a kitchen. What children's TV were you watching? Huh? <laughs> no, I'm talking about the, the adverts. Yeah, but it sounds like you have a very specific advert in mind. Well, because adverts were always who, like who that tried to of... sell you pies when you were a child. Well, I'm not, we're not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> the Glasgow ice cream wars took place in the 1980s. Oh, well, we've got some organized crime going on. This mm-hmm. is nice. <laughs> An ice cream truck driver in Scotland began selling drugs, engaging in a turf war with other ice cream truck drivers that sold drugs. The dispute saw gun violence and arson. Mm. Uh, yeah. There has to be a film about that. Well, I think, um, well, I know like several people who were connected to the ice cream wars have had, like they have featured in um, fictional biopics. I'm, I'm trying to think of a film where they actually touch on the ice cream war. Oh, no, there's Comfort and Joy. Comfort and Joy is a jock, but it's a comedy drama. It would have to be. I mean, that, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but these got they were like fucking they made people know, people got I- people did get killed. You know, like this was a lot of proper drug drug turf war. But the idea it just it's just in my head the idea is so ridiculous. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Ding 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 yeah. ding 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 ding. But these bang. were <laughs> but these va- these ice cream these ice cream men were very nasty people. <laughs> <laughs> this I thought this blew my mind. I was like, why did I not see this before? Spandex the stretchy material synonymous with the 80s is an anagram of expands. Well, I never. Why, yeah. why, why have I never thought about that before? That's one of those ones, yeah, that's been hiding in plain sight. Of course it is. But I never <laughs> thought about it. Yeah. Eddie Murphy's debut musical album was produced by Rick James and Stevie Wonder. It cost over half a million dollars to make Eddie Murphy's album How Could It Be Featuring the infamously bad single Party All The Time. <laughs> which is now in your head. You're yeah, welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> party all the time. Party all the time. Oh, fucking hell. Shut up. He sings it so meekly as yeah. well. It's a horrible, horrible song. It is. It's awful. It's, it's like um, 
See, somebody doing like the worst possible impersonation of Prince. Yeah. Like the worst possible. I can't believe Rick James and Stevie Wonder. I mean, those are talented, genuine musicians. Absolutely, yeah. I can't believe they well, put that piece of crap. Stevie's still knocking about, but um, yeah, Rick yeah. James has popped his clogs on him. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cocaine's Great. a hell of a drug. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my last fact here, uh, I just had to put this in. In the 1980s, a diplomatic conflict arose between Sweden and Russia when the Swedish Navy detected underwater sounds that they believed to be Russian submarines. After a period of heightened tension, it was revealed that the source of the sounds were fish farting. <laughs> this beautiful discovery led to an ignoble prize. <laughs> you know. No, that's two pieces of good news there, isn't it? Number one, the Russians aren't attacking. And number two, we've discovered that fish fart and you can pick it up on a sonar. Well, I mean... <laughs> We always learn something new on the Cinematicalist that podcast. Is very, that is like a fucking Monty Python bit. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our free episode this week. We're going to go and record the premium now. Oh, this is going to be a really good one this week, actually. We're going to talk about one of our favorite films of all time, an absolute, uh, well, I suppose it used to be underrated. These days it is quite rated, but it's an absolute classic. Uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Absolutely. A, uh, well, a massive cult following in decades uh, gone, as you've said. And yeah, and really something of a masterpiece. Sam Peckinpah's best film when he's done some real bangers. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, going to have a good chinwag about that. I fucking love that movie. So. Yeah, we've both uh, re-watched it recently in, uh, in preparation for this. And uh, yeah, just as good as it ever was and a ton of thematic stuff to talk about as well. So Hell quite yes. looking forward to that. And I'm also going to do, as I said at the start of the podcast, a uh, piece on The Crown. The Crown. Because it's a brilliant show. Another one I haven't watched. Yes, <laughs> well, I, I keep recommending you shows and you never watch them. But I, I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying. I'm a useless prick. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, if you'd like to listen to our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page, or you can just Google Cinementalist and it'll take you right there. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast, and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely, that brings us to a close this week. Anything to add, Macy? Just uh, thank you very much for tuning in, guys. Really hope you enjoyed the content, and yeah, go and check out, go and check out all of that stuff, seriously. Even Origins, because it's funny. Just go and watch. This is a week where we recommend you watch it all. <laughs> <laughs> Good positive stuff. Absolutely. All right, guys. Hope to see you on the premium. If not, free one next week. Take it easy. <laughs>